Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, Andrew and I are going to interview a special guest that will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We're going to talk about demonic possession and somewhat distinguishing it from mental illness with exorcist and Ph.D. psychologist, Father John Zeta. Andrew, why are we covering this in 2022? This isn't a real thing, is it? Well, the main reason is because we're at this conference and he gave a talk today. <laughs> and it was outstanding. And so so I, I think this was more than coincidence that we were brought together. But the talk definitely uh, spoke to me about something that I think a lot of people, I, I don't know if they would use the, the phrase demonic possession, but there are many people who I think who could be plagued with spiritual ailments, um, things of some nature or another, unconfessed sins, things that play on mental illness like OCD and anxiety. I know in my practice, mental health is such a common complaint of, of folks that I get to care for. If anything, it's becoming more common. And Father had a great talk identifying how that's related to the influence of the demonic, both in overt possession, but more commonly in obsessions and other things from demons. Right, things that we might not even realize are are our portals, which is a word that you're going to hear him use. So, Andrew, I understand you have a story of an experience that enters into the realm of our topic today. Tell yeah. us. Yeah, I I saw the the title on the uh, the talk, the plenary talk today, and I said, "Ooh, I really am excited for that one." There was a time uh, when I was in college, and basically, I went to a Catholic college, and I was walking by the chapel, heard a whole bunch of commotion, went inside, uh, and there was a person, a student. Uh, I'm not even sure a student or, or maybe another person who was more or less having seizure-like activity. It wasn't clear seizure-like activity, but flailing, knocking over things, foaming at the mouth. Wow. And uh, shouting. In the church? In in the chapel, yeah. And the chapel was kind of empty. It was just a kind of a side chapel, so to speak. But it's causing such a ruckus. And we're like, hey, are you okay? You know, try and somewhat go get help and hold him down and this and that, but broke a couple chairs and it was very weird. And uh, of course, I we were talking to the, the chaplain who ultimately uh, was around and, and got involved when the patient was taken by EMS to the hospital. We're like, okay, is that just creepy that that happened in the chapel? It wasn't a normal seizure. I even, as a college student, could identify that. And and the thing that the priest told us very wisely was that, you know, you you first look at the things that are common and you try and work through the medical aspects of stuff before you point to a supernatural cause. That, that being said, uh, it was awfully odd to me, and the priest even admitted, he's like, yeah, it's going to take a while to figure out exactly what's going on, make sure the patient, from a health standpoint, is not under the influence of drugs and whatnot. But it was shaking for, for myself and other people involved and an item of conversation for a long time. And so I'm really intrigued. I've never spoken to a real exorcist that I know of. Uh, That's a good point. I and don't so know that I have either. I'm, I'm intrigued to, to kind of get the backstory, and especially as it relates to my work in primary care, when I'm caring for somebody with mental illness, how should I think about this? Are there things that would give me clues that I should be looking at a spiritual aspect or trying to get a priest involved as well? I can imagine it's scary to us because we're not used to seeing physical manifestations of the supernatural in our lives, are we? No, it's it's creepy. And I mean, so much of uh, of kind of the popular Halloween and how many horror films, I'm not a horror, horror film person, so I'm not up on that, so to speak, but there's a huge intrigue there. And, and I know for, for myself, I'm a cradle Catholic. My, my strategy has been to just try and avoid, <laughs> avoid a little bit sure. uh, items that could, could bring out any of that. I'm not interested in that. I know it's real. I don't want it in my life. I've talked to other folks, especially from third world countries who have had much closer encounters than I have with things of the demonic. So I'm intrigued to see how it fits into our, our modern life and, and healthcare for people with mental illness. Yeah, I wonder if there are, are ways we're not even aware of that are part of some, you know, maybe not mainstream, but common in certain sectors of society, and they that just think it's a game. 
Well, and, and that's the thing is that so often I think folks are, are intrigued by this as an item of curiosity. I mean, people talk about tarot cards or the horoscopes, if they still have those in newspapers, um, you know, it, an item of curiosity. But as, as Father said in his talk, it's a portal for an, an opportunistic yeah. demand. And we don't want to see that. Well, as you know, before we go to the break, we will have our medical trivia question of the day. Today's category is super, comma, human strength. So not more than a human, but this is pretty super as far as the human body goes. So one of the signs of demonic possession is superhuman strength, which is not possible within normal human body. So the question is an anatomy one. What is the strongest muscle in the human body based on its ability to exert force on an external object. And this force in a normal human being measures 200 pounds per square inch. The Guinness Book of World Record, almost five times that, 975 pounds per square inch. You may not know the name of the muscle, but you might know what it does. We'll be back with the answer at the end of the show. But after this break, we're going to have Father John Zeta, demonic illness, demonic possession or mental illness here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with our special guest today, Father John Zeda. We just heard him speak, Andrew and I, here in Denver from where we're recording at the annual conference of the Catholic Medical Association. And he just wowed the, the plenary session that closed the morning oh, with the topic of demonic possession or is it mental illness? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So Father Zeta, among many other accomplishments, has a BS, MS, and PhD in psychology, as well as being an exorcist for the Diocese of Harrisburg since 2011. Father Zeta, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. My joy to be here. You, you know, this morning, uh, you said something that uh, got my attention. And in fact, we just did it again before we uh, started the interview, and that is you said there's an incredible importance to the prayer of St. Michael the Archangel. Why is that? Well, you know, stop and think about this for a second. There are nine choirs of angels, right? Yes. Lucifer was the highest of all of the angelic choirs, yes. the highest of the seraphim, all right? Now, you go down the choirs from the seraphim, you get down to the bottom, you have the angels, which are the archangels. Just above them you have, I'm sorry, the bottom are the are guardian angels, and just above them are the archangels. Yes. Stop and think about the battle. It was an archangel from group number eight, eight yes. that overcomes Lucifer, the highest, from group number one. Yes. You, you talk about true humility. I mean, you know, being cast down by somebody who is so below you in, in the hierarchy. So, you know, St. Michael has some very, very powerful um, power um, by God, of course, and the name Michael itself means who is like unto God. So, yes. Um, yeah, Michael is, a, you know, our great battle warrior, um, the chief of, of God's armies, and uh, helps us in this great spiritual warfare that we're involved in. And you said that's important when battling demonic influences. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess kind of to start things off, tell us a little bit about your work as an exorcist. Um, uh, in, in the past, I, I was under the impression that it was a top, top secret uh, who is the exorcist of a diocese. You didn't want to be, be known, but that's something we mentioned on air, and, and you've mentioned it. What changed there? Um, the demonic has come out into the open, right? That's what I said in the talk this morning. You know, there's no longer, uh, uh, you know, the secret, hidden, you know, occult stuff anymore. It's right there out in the open. And so if people are in trouble, they need to know where to turn, where to get the help that they need. Uh, so it's a battle. It's a, it's, a, it's a spiritual warfare all across the board, cosmic warfare. And so um, we need to come out into the open, not only to teach people about what's going on, but to help them and give them the resources that they need in this, this tremendous cosmic spiritual battle that's taking place. And tell us a little bit about what, what it looks like in the life of an exorcist. You, you had mentioned kind of an intake process. I think of my clinic, is this a, do you have outpatient appointment slots or you, you have to go places on call? What, what does that look like? All of the above, actually, yes. Now, okay, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all, actual demonic possession uh, full possession is still a relatively rare occurrence. I say relatively um, because it has become much more common. For example, 
The priest who had been the exorcist before me for many years, I asked him once, have you ever had an actual case of demonic possession? He said no. In the 11 years that I have been the um, exorcist, I've had at least six. Right, those are six individuals that yes. are possessed. All right, so but you may have many sessions with a, a single individual. All right, it may go for years, as I mentioned this morning. Yes. So there, that's part of the problem. So first of all, actual possession is relatively rare, but there are many other levels of demonic influence. All right. The most common, of course, is the influence of temptation. We're all under that, all right? We all receive temptations constantly. Um, but then there can be other sorts of things, such as obsessions or oppressions, all right, where demons will actually attack a person, you know, mentally, physically, sometimes, uh, spiritually. There are there are demonic attacks that occur, all right? And then you have these um, infestations where you have demons will be in a place, okay? Um, a haunted house, for example. Um, haunted houses is an interesting phenomenon. Um, they could either be lost souls from purgatory or they could be demons, right? So part of the, the question is, how do you determine which is which? And there are some ways, all right? There are some ways to do it. For example, demons will engage in all kinds of conversations. If a person sees um, a spirit, a figure, whatever. <clears throat> you can look at the figure if it's a full-bodied figure that doesn't really say anything. It's probably a lost soul, right? But if you see a partial figure or a shadow or something like that, and they're talking and saying all kinds of things to you, then that's a demon, right? So there are different ways in which you can discern these things. So, so God doesn't let <clears throat> demons take human form? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, they, 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 they can't take the fullness, fullness of human form, all right, um, because they're not human, all right. So uh, that's part of the issue. So what you have to do then is, I just actually had someone stop me a little bit ago um, and ask me specifically about that question about a house that is supposedly haunted. <clears throat> what should the parish priest do? And I said, the first thing you do is you, you know, you look at the history. Did anything happen in that house? Was there a suicide, a murder, some kind of trauma that occurred there in the past? Something that happened there um, that gives you a clue. Then there might have been that might have been a portal that opened it up to the demonic. All right, but the first thing the priest should do is come and bless the house. No mm -hmm. question about that. In fact, our houses should be blessed on a regular basis, once a year at least. Usually ah. during the, yeah during the Epiphany. That's a good season. take home point. Yeah, so the house should be blessed at least once a year. Yeah, my priest is going to be doing a lot more work if you have to bless houses every year. <laughs> Holy cow. That's, that's what we're here Watch for. out, Father Mark. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, blessing houses should be a part of our regular routine. But anyway, so, um, and if you do that, if the priest will come in and bless the house, then, and, and it doesn't help, all right, then another thing that can be done after that is you have a mass said for the deceased soul. Right? And if that doesn't help, all right, and it's still there, and then the next thing would be to actually bring the exorcist in and do what we call a minor exorcism of the house, um, which is sometimes referred to in the old uh, ritual as the chapter three. It's the, um, the minor exorcism over places. Um, so that can be done. So there are, there are various levels in which these kinds of things occur. So for our show on, on health, what is the relationship between spiritual health, mental health, possession? Uh, are there separate buckets? Do the Venn diagrams overlap? Oh, they completely overlap, and that's exactly the point. And the point that I made this morning was the fact that the human person is a composite whole. We are a person of body, mind, and soul. Without Now, the isn't the mind part of the soul? <sighs> Well, okay, I said body, mind, and spirit is really what I meant to say. I'm sorry. It's body, mind, and spirit. Mind is soul. So here's my confusion on that because I've seen it. It's in the Bible. Paul refers to it in two of his letters. The thing is I've been taught uh, that our soul is a spirit. It is a spirit, but it's not spirit in the technical term. In the writings of St. Teresa of Avila, mm -hmm. Teresa of Jesus, she describes a mystical experience in which the Lord showed her that the soul, the spirit was distinct from the soul. Hmm. She said she didn't understand it. Good, she only, good company. <laughs> she only knew it to be true. Okay? So the soul and the spirit, this is the way I like to put it. So the, the life principle of the body 
is the soul. Mm -hmm. The life principle of the soul is the spirit. So all living things have souls. Correct. All right? But not all living things with souls have spirit. Mm -hmm. It's the spirit in the human person that allows the soul to be immortal, which is the difference between animals, plants, and human beings. Yet the soul and spirit have no parts. Well, in, in the physical sense, that's correct. Right. So they, they're, they're all integrated into one in a sense. But the spirit and the soul are somehow distinct, even though they're intimately connected. All right. Okay. And, and then you have the, the soul, as I said, the soul spirit gives life to the body, <clears throat> which is what the human person is then. So this is where the, the distinctions come in there. So you can have a person who has genuine spiritual you know, maledictions, but it's going to certainly have effects on their mental state and on their physical state. So let's take that one. So how does demonic influence lead to mental illness? And what kind of symptoms might we see? Oh, no, that's a good question too. But we, we actually, we're taking that backwards. What we have to do is the other way around. Mm-hmm. So if we see the situation, a person presents themselves. In fact, during one of the conferences this morning, I had a phone call, a lady who was calling me from, she was in a mental health institution. And she said, Father, can you come over to see me? <laughs> Um, I said, well, not exactly. I mean, you're in Harrisburg and I'm in Denver, so it's not exactly, you know, but we'll see what happens next week. But um, so what happens is you you get a person who comes in with presenting symptomology. Then you have to investigate the situation, right? So we do um, either uh, a psychological or psychiatric evaluation. We do a physical examination, all right? And then we have to investigate the person's background, all right? We investigate their situation. So one of the questions I ask is um, have you ever received counseling or therapy for anything? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so, the, so I have to paint a whole picture. I have to get a whole overview of what exactly is going on. As I said, we have a an intake form which is like seven pages long, in which you get the whole history of the person. You know, anything that they may have been involved in, anything from their past, any traumas that they may have experienced, any reasons they may think, for example, they may be cursed. Um, which does happen. Uh, family, generational things, influence of Masonic, uh, influence, the, all of those things. We, we look at all of that. Then we have to cut the, put the pieces together. And then we say, okay, here's what we see and what we suspect might be the root cause, and that's what we go after. All right? So but what that, are examples of root causes? What are, well, okay, there can be all kinds of different things, but you know, a person who plays around with Ouija boards, tarot cards, uh, goes to you know seances or fortune tellers, you know, those are overt kinds of things. Uh, people who read horoscopes, um, people that use sage in their in their homes, uh, you know, all of these occult practices which have become so much a part of. But people have become so because now I, this is what I think is really at the root of it. Um, especially with post-COVID, but even before that, um, there's a tremendous uncertainty, there's a tremendous fear um, among people today. Um, Without faith, there's no stability. And people are struggling and looking for some kind of, you know, even keel for their lives. And if they don't have God to turn to, they're going to turn someplace else. And that's what they do. So that's why they'll read tarot cards or go to Ouija boards or all those other kinds of things because they're looking for answers. They're looking for a black and white, something that they can hold on to. All right? And if they're not finding it in the church, if they're not finding it you know, uh, in God and in their prayer life, their spiritual life, then um, they're going to go elsewhere. And, and, so, and they do, and they fall into all kinds of things. Um, more and more and more, we encounter situations of people who for example, have never been baptized, mm. right? Well, you have no tools to work with. Right. You know, there's nothing there. Uh, and so, as I said, you know, the important thing is to realize the fact that this entire ministry, you know, we call it exorcism, but it's also deliverance ministry, um, basically is a conversion process. Mm. It's a process of leading people to God, but it's through a healing process. And it's a healing that has to take place on all three levels, right? Physical, uh, mental and spiritual, all right? You don't take one without the other. So in other words, when you're working with somebody, maybe for deliverance, you know, something short of exorcism, are they also working with somebody who does counseling or psychiatry? And oftentimes that happens. I do an awful lot of, of consultation 
um, you know, a person may be seeing a psychiatrist, and I go, I say, okay, when you see your psychiatrist the next time, sign a release form, allow them to consult with me, they'll call me on the phone, we'll discuss the case back and forth, all right? So that's a, that happens very frequently, yes. Man, and Father, I guess maybe a more foundational thing that's occurred to me through our talk is maybe helping us identify what what powers the demons actually have. Because you you had mentioned in your talk this morning about, uh, for example, the seal of confession, that what is revealed in confession the demons uh, are not privy to, they can't use. But then at the same time, uh, really everyone finds themselves subject to certain temptations at different times. Can, Can people fall into levels of possession, or is it more like mortal sin where it has to be an act of the will? How should we, I think there's probably listeners who are you know, am I possessed? Could I fall into this on accident? That type of thing. Well, the first thing I would say is, if a person says, am I possessed, the chances are they're probably not, all right? Um, True possession is the kind of thing where the demon takes over, and to a very large extent, the person becomes unaware of what is happening during the time of possession. Um, They may have these times of blackouts where they don't remember certain special times. Like in the Chosen TV series with Mary Magdalene. What can I say? Um, that's just what happens. That's what happens. And you know, it's an interesting thing. You remember the movie The Exorcist, um, which of course was actually based on a true story. Is that a pretty true to life except for the head spinning? Actually, yes, it is. Um, the man who did the movie, um, I forget his name right now, he actually went to see Father Gabriel Amorth, the famous Roman exorcist, and um, asked him if he could actually f- film an actual exorcist, a real exorcism. He First of all, he asked Father Gabriel what he thought of the movie. Father Gabriel's reaction was he thought it was pretty good. He said so, some of the special William effects, Peter Blatty? William, no, he was the one who wrote the book. Um, but anyway, Father Amora said he thought some of the special effects were a little over the top. But other than that, it was pretty accurate. All right? There was something in there um, that really caught the essence of, this, of the situation. But So yeah, those, those are the kinds of things where... Um, an actual exorcism is relatively rare, but there's different levels. For example, this is going to sound a little bit frightening, but it's really true. There can be what we call partial exorcisms. I'm sorry, partial possession, where a person is possessed, but they're aware of what is happening. And when they're possessed, is their mind, is their spirit, or their body? This is what I'm talking about. And first of all, it's all three. Always all three? Yes. All right. And um, what happens, well, okay, I'm gonna, let me finish the whole thought here. The first thing is that in a partial possession, they're fully aware, but there can also be manifestations. You know, I think of a person, for example, that I interviewed and I gave her a blessing when we were finished. I placed my hands on her head and she began to vibrate and shake and all kinds of stuff just from a blessing, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a physical manifestation and she's aware that it's happening, but she can't control it. Right? So that's partial possession. Then there is full possession in which a demon will um, take over a person, and then in a certain sense the person will black out, and they're not aware of what they have done or what's going on during the time that the demon manifests itself. All right? Interestingly enough, that's connected uh, oftentimes to something that I'm going to be doing some more research on, um, to the phenomenon known as um, dissociative identity disorder. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to be actually doing some research specifically on that topic. Because that is not demonic. Is that correct? Or is it? Um, No. In itself, it's not. But you see, the point is that DID is oftentimes caused by trauma Mm -hmm. that the individual suffered many years ago, all right, in which as a defense mechanism, they've kind of split off aspects of their personality in order to be able to find some kind of normalcy, so to speak. Um, But in fact, when um, the demons do take possession, it's very similar in terms of its symptomology. So the question is, okay, is it DID or is it possession, right? And there are ways, of course, that the church has of, of, of knowing those things. I'll come back to that in a section. Um, the third element is there is a thing called perfect possession. And this is the one that's frightening that most people don't know an awful, about, an awful lot about. Per, uh, perfect possession is a situation in which an individual has freely chosen to give themselves totally to Satan, we know cases, for example, and I'm talking about one case right now that I'm, I'm involved with, where a priest 
had already given himself, he was a secret Satanist. Catholic priest who was a secret Satanist, all right? Gave himself totally over to Satan, right? Um, so Satan has possessed the person totally, but the person has chosen that freely, okay? It's not like they did something. They made a conscious choice to give themselves. That's perfect possession. Those people you wouldn't even know because they don't manifest in the way that other possessions occur. So, and unfortunately, the kinds of people who do that sort of thing are the people we would call positions of power. They're going to be doctors, lawyers, police officers, judges. Those, those are the kind of, and those are the ones who are in control in society that are making the decisions that are sending everything to ruin. So that's a real thing. And it is, I guess there's so many questions to ask. One more right before our break. Can someone fall into possession without their knowledge? Do I have to worry about this? Take your break. We'll come back to that. Oh, very good. We'll be back here on Dr. Doctor with a toughie of a question, I guess, here on Dr. Doctor. And we are back today on Dr. Doctor with Father Zeta, who is an exorcist and explaining to us things that you didn't know about uh, exorcism and demonic possession, but especially as they relate to mental illness. Father, what do you look for? Um, are there signs that make you think a person is possessed? What the church has actually given us is, as far as the investigation into a case, there are four signs that the church does. It's in, right in the ritual that you can look for, right? So all these four signs, one would be the person has a knowledge of languages that they've never known or been exposed to, right? Which I've encountered a few times. Um, a second one is superhuman superhuman strength or you know physical abilities beyond their normal capabilities all right there's a second one um a third one is the knowledge of uh events that or things that they should not have any knowledge of that they should not know but somehow they're they're aware of what those particular things are and then a fourth one is the um an aversion to sacred objects all right, and that's a very important one. Sometimes, you know, some priests will, will play games in a sense. Um, they, they'll sprinkle a person supposedly with holy water, but it's just tap water. And if the person reacts to that. Oh, I love it. Okay. Oh. If a person reacts to that, then you know that it's fake. Okay. I do the same thing when I'm numbing patients, <laughs> ask them if they can feel it. And I'm doing this with a needle, but not touching them. And if they say they can feel it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, let me give you a good one, though. I was interviewing a woman one time. Um, I told her I would meet her in the church. The only time she could come to the church was when I told her she had to be in the church. So I had a number of my team members with me. Okay. And um, I was sitting in the pew. She was in the pew behind me. Two of my team members were in the pew behind her, two women. One of them had just a, a bag. It wasn't a purse, but just a kind of bag that sometimes women would carry, in of which she had a first-class relic. Mm-hmm. And during my discussion with this individual, the woman behind her just kind of gently leaned forward and placed this bag against the back of the pew on which the person was sitting. The woman screamed, jumped up in the air, flew out into the aisle, and said, what was that? What did you do? What did you just do to me? Wow. She had no idea of what was going on, and yet she felt the impact of that first-class relic against her back, even though she didn't even know it was there. So those are some of the things that you can do sometimes in order to, uh, to test whether or not it's a person is faking it, imagining it, or if there's actually a demonic uh, presence involved. If, if someone is possessed in, in one of these various levels, what are the treatments that you prescribe or do? Okay, the first thing, as I said, is we have to find out what was the cause. What was it that, what was the doorway, the portal that gave the demon entrance, all right? That's very, very important because you have to close that portal whatever it was. So sometimes the person has to renounce whatever that was that they were involved in. For example, um, involvement in the Masonic orders. Mm-hmm. A person has to, there's an actual ritual for renunciation of the Masonic connections. Oh, well, there's a whole ritual for that. Um, so you find out what the, what the root cause is and you attack that. Um, if it's just a, a case where a person is just overly possessed and, and um, what you, there's, again, the church has her ritual uh, for um, a formal exorcism, but a formal exorcism has to be given uh, permission by the bishop. Mm. So if I have a case that I reach the point where 
yes, I'm pretty convinced that this is an actual case of possession. But I write a formal letter to the bishop and ask him to um, grant me permission for this exorcism, and then he does. Um, so um, sometimes I have another case right now, for example, where um, because of the sensitivity of the case, the bishop and I have discussed it, and he's given me verbal permission to do the exorcism, but there's no record of it. Mm. All right, to protect it because there's a lot of a lot of things involved in it to, to sure. protect a lot of things. So, um, so that's what we do. So there's a formal rite of exorcism, and um, there are two forms. Of course, now we have the, the traditional form of exorcism, uh, the older form, and then we have the new rite of exorcism, uh, which is rather interesting. Even in the history of the new rite of exorcism, it was the last ritual of the church to be renewed after Vatican II, mm. just a few years ago, actually, and um, it was released and almost immediately withdrawn because it became very evident very quickly that it was ineffective, especially from the bishops of Africa. They, they said, oh. no, it doesn't work. We don't want it, all right? So what they ended up doing was revising the whole ritual and incorporating a lot of the prayers from the old ritual into the new ritual, all right, in English translation, of course. And so now we have these two rites. Um, Father Dennis McManus, I, I love the man, he's just a great uh, teacher and exorcist himself, but he once said, you know, you know, the difference between the two rites was simply like, you know, in the old rite, you would command the demon, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, get out of here. Whereas in the new rite, it's more like, you know, well, if you don't mind, we'd appreciate it if you would leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably less effective, I could see so that. So the point would be, depending on the case that you're dealing with, sometimes the the newer rite is effective because it's not a real serious case of possession, whereas in other cases, you have to use the older form. So there are levels of possession. Yes, there are levels. And, and where do the sacraments play a role in this? Well, again, it depends because a lot of times the people that are coming to you are not Catholic. Uh, uh, so okay. that, that, that presents a problem, all right? Um, and more and more, because the, the ministers of the churches, they, they, they don't do that stuff, you know? So um, th then we, we try to deal them back into their own communities, their own parishes, their own churches. Um, but uh, yeah, it's very difficult. I, I've had a number of cases of them recently where I've been to homes of, uh, of uh, individuals whose homes were being attacked, so to speak, and their ministers came and blessed the place, but it didn't do any good. Wow. And so I, I went and <clears throat> tried doing different things with them. But there's always that root cause. So in this one particular case, you know, we realized that there was an awful lot of trauma from this woman's background, and there was a lot of, she was not forgiving those who had done bad things to her, and that was what was allowing the demon to get in there. That's a pretty small opening. Yes, 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 and that goes to some of those things that you were mentioning before. You know, can a person fall into possession or at least demonic attack? And the answer is yes. What, what kind of advice, then, would you have to the listeners who say, well, I want to stay away from that? How grow, do I Grow protect? in your spiritual life. Okay. Stay close to Christ. Stay close to the sacraments. Um, you know, pray, be holy, stay close to the Eucharist, confession. Um, you know, grow spiritually. Take your spiritual life seriously. That's your best defense against the demons. So, Father, getting uh, back into some of the nitty-gritty of mental illness, you mentioned off-air that uh, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, uh, dissociative identity disorder, and probably others, can be caused or worsened by demonic influence. How do we know as doctors, or how do patients know when that might be the case? Because some of these are incredibly common. Schizophrenia not as common, of course, and DID less common. Well, it's interesting. Um, I just ordered it should be arriving hopefully by the time I get home from this. Um, the the latest edition of the uh, the DSM five, you know, TR, um, and they you know they finally have admitted that, that well yeah there is such a thing as possession although they're still not quite sure where the to DSM yeah but they're not quite sure where to put it to categorize <laughs> it you know? can't imagine how many ICD codes yeah. fall it's under there, that it's there but you know um, so actually you're right it's it's a tricky situation and um, we are planning to do some research in that very area for example when people claim to be hearing voices you know is it schizophrenia? Is it delusional? Or is it really, you know, um, demonic? You know, so uh, I plan. We are planning to do some research in that very area. You had mentioned earlier that if the patient's undergoing good standard of care treatment and you're not enjoying success, that might be a, a time to look further. Correct. So, but that does not eliminate 
the need for the mental health treatment. In other words, it's not an either or, all right? Um, so what happens is then you, you start using prayers of deliverance, prayers of healing, prayers of forgiveness, all right, while at the same time so that you can be rooting, you, dealing with the root causes, but there are still those residual effects. There are still there's symptoms that are flowing out there. And so that's why the other aspect of the um, mental health uh, counseling, whatever, is also important. In other words, they go together. It's not one or the other. It's, it's both. And what, what would be a good strategy for physicians? You know, you're, you're dealing with folks of all sorts of beliefs and whatnot to introduce this idea, especially if you're not enjoying treatment success. How can we broach that? Well, first of all, you have to be able to trust your own instincts, all right? In other words, there has to be a certain sensitivity on the part of the physician um, that there may be something more going on here than just a, a physical illness. The second thing then becomes don't be afraid to consult, whether it be your parish priest or the diocesan exorcist or even the bishop about what you're experiencing here. And then I would say you would craft a kind of approach dealing with the specific case that you're dealing with what you can say and how you can say it to enable the person to realize that maybe there's more going on here than just their physical symptoms. So have you been referred clients, patients, by doctors? Yes. And what was it that happened with the doctor that led them to send them your way? Um, interesting. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, that was exactly the topic of my doctoral dissertation. <laughs> oh, wow. Very good. <laughs> what, what the, the topic was basically, you know, what are the experiences of mental health professionals that would lead them to refer a patient for an exorcism? Right, that was exactly my dissertation topic. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of those kinds of, again, it's like a detective work. You have to be sensitive. You have to be discerning. You have to be open to what's going on in front of you. But you also have to be aware of the fact that you, if you're taking that seriously, could yourself come under attack. And if that happens, that's a pretty good sign that there really is something demonic going on there. So what kind of attack would the doctors experience? Mm, it could be all kinds of things, you know, anxiety, fear, tension, um, thoughts that go through your minds. A couple of people have stopped me today and said, yeah, I suddenly had this, this thought out of nowhere that, you know, how could you possibly believe in the Immaculate Conception? He said, and that went on for a whole day. And he said, where was this coming from? You know, that's the kind of thing that happens sometimes, you know, things that just come out of the blue or seemingly out of the blue, but are actually demonic responses to something maybe that you're trying to do yourself, either for your patient. Well, and I guess a, a thought that occurs to me is that, you know, I'm almost, I'd almost rather not talk about some of this stuff. You, you had mentioned the movie The Exorcist, and there's books on exorcism and whatnot. I mean, there's an intrigue there. But is it more prudent to just totally stay away and, and not think about it uh, unless we subject ourselves to attack? In other words, focus on being possessed by the Holy Spirit. Well, the, <laughs> there you well, go. But the other thing is, and you're also denying a certain element of reality. Sure. Sure. Which we can't do anymore because the, the demonic, as I said, is out in the open. It's all around us. It's infant influencing church, state everything all the way down the line. So we what, have to be. What advice would you have to people who have an interest there? Is it okay to proceed with, with trying to learn about some of that? Are there good resources that we could recommend? Never do it on your own. Always do it under the guidance of a priest or an exorcist or somebody who can kind of you know, keep an eye on that. In other words, it helps to have a spiritual director. Okay. Okay, have a spiritual director that you can sit down with on a regular basis, talk to, get guidance from, and let him, you know, or her, their women's spiritual directors, um, guide you in where you're going with some of those things. Because sometimes a person can say, no, I think you're going a little bit too far on this. I actually just did that last week with somebody. Um, but um, in other cases, say, yeah, maybe you should look into this a little bit more. So um, don't, don't ever try to do it on your own. Have some guidance advice. and direction. It. Yeah. That's really good. One, one other question, kind of uh, unrelated, but during your talk today, you mentioned something called speak boxes. Oh, yes, which thank you. I, I had never heard of. I'm thinking of folks who are listeners who might have children. Tell us about that and other things that we should think about. Well, I don't know if you noticed, but you know, we had like, what, 600 people in there? Yes. And I asked how many had heard of speak boxes, and I don't think – I didn't see one hand go up. Even the yeah. medical students. Me neither, yeah. I've never heard of them, all right? Speak boxes are devices that are apparently something like 
uh, a cell phone, but you don't call a number or anything like that. It's not like it's some kind of a gimmick. Um, but it's supposedly wired in such a way in certain frequencies. And demons love that electronics, by the way. They oh. play all kinds of games with electronics. Um, so, but anyway, it was supposedly enables a person to speak with the dead. All right. So sometimes people get depressed, discouraged. Where's my husband? Where's my son? Where's my, you know, whatever? Uh, are they okay? Are they at peace? Blah, blah, blah. And so they get one of these devices and they contact the dead and have a conversation with them and don't even realize the fact that they were actually talking to a demon because God does not allow the souls of the deceased to engage in conversations with the living. Wow. So, you know, those are portals. Well, and I've had three cases now of individuals who have used speak boxes, and in every single case they, they experience attack afterwards. So, Father, to me, from the outside, it seems like, you know, those who practice, you know, Wiccan religion and their special prayers and formulas, the formulas, it seems like almost the prayers of, you know, releasing somebody from possession almost sound like some magic formula. How are they not? Because they're backed by faith. But you said that that one new right wasn't effective, but that was still backed by faith. So what's the difference there? Uh, well, it, the language itself, well, first of all, it's the language of the church. Mm-hmm. You know, because if you're not careful, you could almost say that the Eucharist is magic. Right. Right. But, it's not. but it's not, all right? So these are the sacramentals of the church, and these are sacramentals, not sacraments, mm-hmm. um, backed by faith, but they are the official rites of the church. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of which, they have a totally different status. They're not just simply magic formulas, all right? The, the very language itself, and Father McMahon has talked about the fact that the language of the old rite of exorcism is a very specific form of Latin which is a very ancient form which was found in no other of the church's rituals. Hmm. It's a very strong, powerful uh, ritual formula attacking the demon in a very strong way, much of which has been lost in, in translation, right? Uh, even though they have the words, you don't have quite the, the, the oomph behind it, so to speak. Um, so, it, yeah, it's not magic. Uh, it's backed by the faith of the church, but it's backed by the authority of the church, and that, that has a lot to do with it. But what, what was it about that new rite that it didn't work, and then they went back to the old prayers? Well, because, the, the, well, without actually going through the rite itself, it would be kind of hard to, um, to, to give you a real in-depth answer on that but one. But there were substantive changes. There were substantial changes, okay. yes. Okay. And I guess as, as we're kind of wrapping up here, this, this opens a lot of different questions, I think, for people. What would be a resource we could point them to if they wanted to learn more, if they have more questions relating to, to this, especially as it relates to mental illness, because so many people suffer from mental illness? Well, if, uh, since this is a, um, a podcast which is primarily geared towards medical professionals. No, no and lay people. Lay people. Right. Yeah. One of the things, again, I would su- suggest is this um, book, which we've just um, come out with a second edition to, uh, The Guidelines for Mental Health Professionals Supporting Persons Seeking Freedom and Recovery from Possession and Other Spiritual Afflictions, which is published by the Catholic Psychotherapy Association, um, which you can get if you go online to the Catholic Psychotherapy Association website. Which is catholicpsychotherapy.org. Correct. Right. So you go on there and you'll be able to find uh, this. But that, that's a place to start. Um, but again, I would suggest that you have to be very, very careful. Um, always do it under the guidance of, of a priest uh, or an exorcist, somebody who can you know, recommend or suggest things based on your own particular background. Because there are so few spiritual directors now. How do we overcome that? Well, uh, for example, in my diocese, they have actually run a program which is uh, trains lay people to be spiritual directors. Beautiful. Okay, and um, one of the individuals who is one of those is one of my directees. So I directed him all through the program, and he still comes to me for spiritual direction, even though he has three or four uh, clients of his own for spiritual direction. So I think that's what we need to do, you know. And we also need to 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 get more of our priests you know, willing to take that on because that's that's our job. That's our role. That's what a priest is about, you know. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's a possibility. Oh, someone in the hall wanted me to ask the question, how do we let the young people know the things that are really dangerous that they think are just games? And how do we let parents know what to look out for? This is the responsibility of their parish priests. 
He should be saying these things in youth group meetings. He should be saying these things from the pulpit. He should be saying them at every opportunity that presents itself to him. You know, don't just, you know, brush it aside or ignore it. That these are the things that should be. I am very, very happy. I get requests to speak at all different places. You know, not too long ago, I was um, asked to come to one of the college campuses in, near where I am, um, spoke to the young people there. It, it's uh, parishes, 40 hours, wherever I have the opportunity to go, um, as I am here today, um, speaking here to the Catholic Medical Association. So um, these things are important, and I think that people can pick up from what I say and carry it on from there. So is, is there something more than speak boxes, Ouija boards, tarot cards, seances, horoscopes? It's a whole attitude. I recently had to go to a, we have a community of hermits, um, Carmelite hermits in my diocese, um, and some group unknown um, came and apparently did a um, some ritual curse in the property, right after the Roe v. Wade decision, by the way, um, and they could all feel that they were under attack, and it was rather sad. I had to go and do a minor exorcism of the place, prayers of protection, and prayers to break curses, because curses are very real, too. So, yeah, it's it's a very involved sorts of thing, and people don't even realize sometimes. So people can be under attack because they've been cursed by somebody else. It can come from the outside. Come from the outside, yes. Mm-hmm. So what's your last word of hope for us? Uh, pray. <laughs> that's the key. Pray and depend upon the grace of God, because that's what we need. Father John Zeta, thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor. My joy. Thank you. God bless you. And we are back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question with the category Superhuman Strength. As you heard, Father Zeta said that's one of the four signs that pretty convincingly uh, can point to demonic possession. So my question is, you know, it's not superhuman strength, but it's pretty strong. Which muscle in the human body, based on its ability to exert force on an external object, can do 200 pounds per square inch, while the Guinness Book of World Records is 975 pounds per square inch. Which muscle is it that can do that incredible amount of pressure? Did you know this, Andrew? I had heard of this before, but I didn't remember it. Yeah, the muscle is the masseter muscle. And while the name might not be familiar, its function is. It's the one that allows you to bite your teeth together really tightly. Yes, and I think the the dental listeners will recognize that's the cause of all these fractures of the old fillings and everything else because it's such a strong muscle. Well, and it also leads to TMJ syndrome, temporomandibular joint problems, and that grinding. So people who are grinding, that's your master muscle that's overactive. And while that's not superhuman strength, that's really a high amount of strength. And they've uh, estimated, you know, crazy people, that the, the megalodon... <laughs> And T-Rex probably have had the highest bite strengths of any creatures known, if Megalodon exists. I don't know. Those of you who watch Shark Week, of course, it exists. (laughs) (laughs) Well, see, now you've got me intrigued about the Guinness World Record, how they tested that and what what that study was like to accomplish that. There is a measuring device, and it had a bizarre long name that I actually did not commit to memory. That will shock my wife and those who know me. (laughs) How do you train for that test, (laughs) you know? Yeah, how do you, you... You don't. So... Enough on the masseter. Andrew, there was so much in that interview. I mean, it's just a blast talking to Father Zeta. What are your top three takeaways? Yeah, there's a a lot of things. I I guess my number one, he said a couple times that I really liked, is don't do it alone. I I know this uh, whole topic of demonic possession and spiritual warfare is an item of intrigue for many people. And he had really good advice. Get yourself a spiritual director, speak to your priest, have someone help guide you so that you also don't fall prey to to items of the occult or of too much intrigue for intrigue's sake, you know. So I thought that was great advice. And I love the way that exorcists just talk matter-of-factly that this is a part of reality just as much as Dunkin' Donuts down the street is a part of our reality. Actually, more a part than Dunkin' Donuts. It's really incredible because I do think a lot of folks, myself included, would rather not confront this on a routine basis, but then it, it leaves you ill-prepared, I think, when, when it does come into people's lives. So Yes, it's real. So, number two. Number two was his, uh, his antidote for, for the faithful to, to protect themselves were primarily the sacraments. He said in his talk today, I know that confession was the number one thing, and he said not to minimize the rosary and St. Michael and all these other things, but if you're going to confession, that restores your union with God and forgives your sins. And those things that you discussed there are not 
something that the demons can actually prey on or, or use uniquely to, to make your life more challenging. So avail yourself to the sacraments. And then number three, I would say for, for practitioners and doctors and providers of all sorts, refer when appropriate. I, I know, Tom, you've probably had cases like this, but I can think of cases when everything's, for, for once, going right, you're doing everything, and yet you're not met with the results that you think uh, you should be met with. And so be open to the idea that there's a spiritual element, and uh, don't hesitate to refer to your local priest. And, and I love the point, he mentioned his talk this morning of our recording day, and during our recording, that we can trust our instinct that something might be off. Yeah, and I, how many times have have people told you that or you've experienced that yourself where you just, you can't put your finger on it, but there's something awry here. I, ex- I experienced that, and it's not, of course, in what I treat. I treat skin cancer all day long operating on it, but I can sense with the patient there's something, there's something in the room when I'm in there that's just not right, and I just can't wait to get out of there, even though nothing is specifically said. Yeah, that is... That is scary, and uh, I would say if if you are unnerved by any of this, uh, go to confession and go to Mass. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this episode and all our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on Episode Archive at the top, and you can search over 280 episodes by topic or guest. And all of our episodes except this one are on video format on YouTube. We're doing a, a away episode, so to speak. So this one, <laughs> this one is just audio. But generally, check out our videos on drdoctor.org. And if you've got a great idea for an episode, submit a question. Click on that button and tell us what you think. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.